Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams. Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast in which we talk about the secrets behind living an inspired and extraordinary life. I'm Ellen Barton, and today my guest is Kate Mahoney. When Kate was just 14 years old, she was diagnosed with stage four germ cell ovarian cancer, from which she made a recovery that was no less than miraculous. Kate has written a best-selling book called The Misfit Miracle Girl. The Pope himself called her a miracle. I'm so glad to have her on the show today. Kate, welcome. Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. Wonderful. Well, your story, you know, I heard it and it just immediately resonated. And I, 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 I'm amazed that you were able to find humor in this whole thing, but I'm excited to talk to you about that too. But this sounds like every parent's worst nightmare to find out your child has been diagnosed with that scary, potentially fatal disease at that very young age. Why don't you tell us what your life was like kind of like before you got diagnosed and then you know, lead us up to the point where you found out that you were ill? Sure. I think um, adventure and normalcy are both words that are kind of interchangeable and play really well together in describing my life prior to my diagnosis. I was born in Washington, D.C., and we moved over the Potomac uh, I think when I was like two and a half. So my real formative years and my memory begins in Alexandria, Virginia, my hometown. My parents were both very active in Capitol Hill and doing a lot in education and advocacy in various circles. And my neighborhood, you know, we look at Washington today and we think that it's this very, very busy place. And you know, there's smog and there's buildings everywhere and all kinds of corporations and government. And, and those things were happening, but they were building blocks in the early 80s when I was there. My community was really a very small town where we walked to the farmer's market and we all had the same piano teacher. We all played on the same neighborhood soccer team. And our mayor actually was in the dunk tank at the annual, you know, spring and fall festivals. So everybody was kind of in and out of one another's homes. And and most of our parents worked in D.C. and had some role in government or justice or legal. So that was the norm. And um, it was idyllic. I mean, when I look back, knowing what I've experienced in my young adult life and certainly into my adult years, it was just the happiest place on earth and the happiest time in my life. In, um, in 1990, my dad came home from work and he said to me, Button, I have great news. We're moving to Ireland. And, you know, this is long before social media or cell phones or anything really other than geography maps in elementary school. And I thought to myself, I have no idea why you want to destroy my life. You know, why would I leave this magical place, Alexandria, with all my friends and my soccer team and the church choir and my dog? But my dad had been given the opportunity to teach and create an American government curriculum, the first of its kind, in colleges in the Republic and some schools in Northern Ireland. And that was really his dream. And my mom supported that and believed in it. And I was just you know, a standard obnoxious 11-year-old who really believed my life would be over if we left. And uh, we packed up and we went to Ireland. We were there for two academic years. And kids are really kids everywhere. And I don't mean to say that in a kind of dumbed down or condescending way, because certainly I haven't, have only lived in certain places in the world. But I made friends instantly. My mom coached our soccer team because we were living in Ireland pre-Title IX. So there really weren't a lot of girls' athletics. So she supported me in that. And I found a piano teacher. And we just ingrained ourselves into the culture and the society and, and have friends today that lasted a lifetime. But we were back in central New York in the summers in between those years. And it's that second summer of 1992 that while on vacation, I had my diagnosis. Oh, wow. Did, did you have any indication that you were, I mean, were you not feeling well or what prompted 
the trip to the doctor? You know, the onset of it was very, very quick. Um, we were on the beach up on Lake Ontario and where we'd spent every summer. So that piece of things was incredibly familiar and comfortable, but it was like 90 degrees out and I was freezing and shivering and I really wasn't interested in food and any food I did eat, I just couldn't keep down. So finally, my parents, well, not finally, because as I said, it was all really quick, but my parents took me into Syracuse to my grandparents' doctor and they ran a bunch of tests and, you know, they kind of pressed on my abdomen and did all those initial intake things and thought that I had a smoldering appendix. So they said to me, you know, go home, monitor your symptoms and let us, you know, if anything changes, obviously come in, but we'll let you know. And sort of what happened in that 24 hour ish period is that my symptoms got a lot worse and my blood labs came back indicating that things were not okay. And the next, I mean, I have a slew of fragmented memories that come through, but essentially the big part was that this doctor came into my bed at the hospital and said, hi, I'm from oncology, to which I replied, hi, I'm from Virginia, because <laughs> I, thought we were, I thought we were just saying where we were from. I, you know, right. it just did not, it didn't hit me. And I think, um, you know, the benefit and the drawback of medicine and technology are all kind of intertwined because in 1992, anybody in my family that was, you know, deceased or had died, like from the famine in Ireland or anywhere else was kind of lumped into this category of, oh, they died of consumption, which was like the historically accurate thing to call any number of diseases. So my, my understanding of oncology was not anything terminal, not even necessarily anything frightening. Um, I just really had no no real understanding of it. Whereas today, you know, we've got support groups and fun runs and 5Ks and um, infusion centers and the technology that enables kids to be in the hospital but still be in their classroom. You know, none of, and so, so it's sort of part of the conversation nationally now, and it just wasn't at the time of my diagnosis. Yeah, that's really interesting, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around you going so quickly from this healthy kid to someone who's really, really sick and facing, you know, what did they, did they tell you that this was life-threatening at that point or, um, in that moment of introduction, uh, no, you know, it was clear to me by my parents' expressions that things were not okay, but you have to remember, I'm, I'm 14. I do, I'm not, in a hospital that I've ever been in. I'm not with a doctor I've ever met before. I'm not even in a town that I grew up in. So there were so many variables for me that seemed overwhelming. And like, I was just trying to find stable footing that that wasn't even part of my scope of, uh, interest. And then when I came out of surgery, I don't even remember anybody telling me exactly the specifics of what had been done in surgery, but this stage four tumor the size of a basketball had been had been pressing more up against my spine, so it wasn't like I had a hard mass poking out of my abdomen, but that was removed, and it had been removed in its entirety by a technological process with a machine called Acusa, which is essentially a tumor vacuum cleaner. And I was in the care of one of the top GYN oncologists in the region. And I think even in the country at that time, I mean, he's still the best as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, it, there's no, there isn't an explanation, Ellen. It, I did not have symptoms. It happened very, very quickly, and it was very extreme, and everything lined up for us to be, I think, ultimately in the right place at the right time with the right people. Wow, it, it sounds amazing. And, you know, thinking about something the size of a basketball, being in a young yeah. woman's body is, is just terrifying. But what happened, so then after the surgery, was the recovery smooth, or, or what happened going forward then? Well, 
protocol of the time, again, you know, we're, we're working with pre-internet era. So in order to gather information and statistics, it was not like hopping on a website or, you know, sending emails and getting instant reply. There were phone calls and phone tag and things that had to come in the mail uh, in terms of looking at a young woman who was 14 with stage four germ cell ovarian cancer. At the time, I was one of, I think, around a thousand cases in the country. So that's a very small number to work with. And even though I had this excellent doctor and he understood uh, the use of the equipment and was able to take out this tumor in its entirety, the protocol dictated that I would require um, aggressive chemotherapy. So as I was beginning recovery from my surgery, I was simultaneously beginning chemotherapy. And then you add in the layers of my parents saying, okay, this is where we need to be now. So we have to find all of our belongings in different storage facilities and have them sent to Syracuse. We have to put our house on the market. And, oh, by the way, we're going to need to enroll Kate in school. So um, that, I mean, when you say was recovery smooth, yeah, probably that one element of recovering from surgery was very benign, <laughs> no pun intended. And uh, every other part was so in flux that, that it was hard to know which end was up at any given moment. And then going into chemo, I was meeting new people. We moved in with my grandmother. I was having horrible side effects, no different than, than people today who go in expecting one thing and coming out, finding out that they are now a cancer patient. You know, I had severe nausea, severe vomiting. The month of October, I was in the hospital the entire time with ulcers that lined my mouth and my throat. And that was due to, you know, the toxicity of chemotherapy. So, uh, but again, I would never blame chemo because I think if we're entertaining this conversation, then we know that chemo is often the cure and the cause of both good and bad. And, uh, and then fortunately or unfortunately for the purpose of, of me sitting here telling you this story, I did go into multiple organ failure and, and that is what my recovery documentation is in relation to miracle. Mm, so multiple organ failure happened, uh, when you were going through the chemo. Yes. I, I had had several cycles of inpatient chemo, which required me to be in the hospital for seven to 10 days. So, you know, we did that in August, September, October, November, and end of November, early December. I, I have no memory of this, but my mom has related to me enough times that I can speak relatively candidly about it. I had back pain and I said to my mom, can you climb on my back and, and press? My back really hurts. Just press harder, press harder. You can't hurt me. So she did, and essentially, from a medical standpoint, what was happening is I was going into hepatic and renal failure, and for those medically inclined, those are two organs which have a high function in regard to detoxifying and keeping the body clean and healthy, and with those two organs in failure, I was not able to remove fluid from my own body or um, manage processing of different enzymes. So I went from about 132 to 212 pounds, give or take, in like nine hours. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah. And they rushed me from my room in on the oncology floor, which was an adult floor, to a procedure area to try and get scans to, you know, get a better handle on what was going on. But between all the fluid kind of clouding the imagery and the fact that I was in so much pain, they couldn't get a clear understanding of what was going on inside. But the fluid had, had caused so much pressure that it actually collapsed my right lung. So they went, they took me into a special procedure room to drain fluid off they drained four and a half liters of fluid from my abdomen, and I started bleeding internally and went into cardiac arrest for 25 minutes. At that point, my mom 
heard me say, I'm falling, I'm falling. And, and I wasn't actually, you know, falling off anywhere. I was crashing. Um, my oncologist gathered all of my medical records. I was on a gurney instantly. My mom and the oncologist met the head of the intensive care unit, I think in the hallway and the oncologist handed the binder to, um, the attending for ICU and said to my mom, this is Kate's doctor now. So it, in, in my case, at this point, I'm, I'm no longer an active cancer patient. It's part of my history, but they ceased any and all um, medical intervention for cancer, and they were focused solely on organ recovery and restoration. Uh, restoration's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And uh, so... I was admitted into the intensive care unit with a less than 2% uh, chance of mortality, at which point my gallbladder, my skin, my blood, and my pancreas all entered into a state of failure. So that in the medical community is considered multi-system organ failure. I was, um, they did a chest tube. They did an emergency intubation, which scarred and abraded my, or separated and abraded my vocal cords, and I was put into a medical coma for 47 days. Oh my goodness, how horrifying for you and your parents. That, that sounds absolutely horrible. The, the horrifying part for me was years later. It really was. Right. I have no, I have no cognitive memory of any of this. Um, my mom was absolutely the wisdom keeper and the historian of all of this. In addition to being my mom and supporting her kids in extreme crisis. Mm. So, yeah. Oh my goodness. So how, in the course of all this, how did the church end up getting involved with your case? How did they find out about you? you said, as you said, it's pre-internet. Mm-hmm. So my um, my family is was is Catholic, and I was raised Catholic, and we had an understanding of faith and prayer in not only crisis but times of celebration, times of gratitude, and everything in between. It you know I I was not raised uh, to ever separate faith from action or anything else, so that just was foreign to me to kind of not have it be a part of my day to day. And, and not in an evangelizing kind of way, just something that was my understanding of what faith meant. It, you know, you, it infuses everything you do. So when we were back in my parents' home community of central New York, obviously we had so many circles of friends and family praying for me as a cancer patient and certainly when I went into the ICU. But my dad's one of my dad's former bosses was a congressman from upstate New York, Congressman Hanley. And he and his wife were having dinner at their home celebrating the holidays. And they had their two cousins, Sister Rose Vincent, who was the head of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is a hospital founded by former um, saint, or no, current saint, but Mother Mary Ann Cope, and also sister Mary Lawrence Hanley was at the table and she was a member of the third order of Franciscans, which is also the order of St. Mary Ann Cope. And sister Mary Lawrence's job was that she was charged with the cause for canonization. She was given this task several years earlier in her time in the sisterhood. And so they're having this holiday meal and Jim and Rita basically say to their cousins, you know, our friends, the Mahoney's are really having a tough time and Kate is not expected to survive. At, to which the sister said, do you think they would be open to praying to Mother Marianne? Now, of course, Mother Marianne is long deceased and her knowledge in terms of our community history is that she founded St. Joe's Hospital. She worked with the lepers out in Hawaii and she's in the Women's Hall of Fame for her role in health administration. So, she was on the radar a little bit for my family. And Jim's response to the sisters was, well, obviously they are praying for a miracle at this point. So I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be interested in this. Cut to the sisters coming to the hospital. And I will share a funny piece of this because, you know, my mom is at my bedside 99% of the time. My dad was 
managing some of his own personal medical affairs in addition to trying to figure out how we were going to have income and how we were going to have health insurance and, you know, some very human things. And she was totally sleep deprived. So one day she got in the elevator and she saw Big Bird and Big Bird went to visit a kid and she thought that was so nice. And another day she was on the elevator and she ran into McGruff, the crime dog. And she thought, oh, you know, this is so great that they have these people visiting patients. So by the time she got on the elevator with a nun dressed in a full habit, my mom's actual response was, I, I wonder who needed somebody to come from the sound of music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it, it did not occur to her at all. And, you know, she went through Catholic school and she was taught by nuns in full habits. But, but really, in terms of her frame of reference and sleep deprivation, every time she got in the elevator, she saw a different character. So why wouldn't it be someone from The Sound of Music? And she got off and the sister followed her and, and met her across the bed from me. And that was this introductory conversation of the sisters essentially saying to my parents, would you be interested in directing your prayers to Mother Marianne and asking her to intercede in Kate's recovery? And if, you know, you get the result that you so desire, would you then be willing to testify that this happened and participate in whatever that looks like? And my parents said yes. And so what happened at that point is that my mom would call Sister Mary Lawrence at the mother house, which was here in Syracuse on the north side, and she would convey information and pass on prayer requests and intentions like Kate has a respiratory infection or Kate is having her platelets transferred or uh, transfused, sorry, or her liver enzymes are off. So these are all things that we pray for. And remember, multi-system organ failure. So I had like 17 doctors that all had their part, my part of a body that they were working on. And, you know, medications that might work for the lungs, but they have to be metabolized through the liver and the liver's not up to metabolizing. So there's this dance and all these nuances that were so important. And so I think that, what happened really, what, what I believe this miracle is, is the overseeing of all of that, because certainly I wasn't in a Catholic hospital. I didn't have all Catholic doctors. I didn't even have doctors and nurses who believed in God, but I had very capable, caring people who put me first in every sense of the word in terms of my survival. And on the other side of the phone, the message at the mother house goes on a bulletin board for people coming and going. And it would say things like, okay, pray for the transfusion, pray for the liver enzymes, pray for the respiratory infection. And whoever was coming and going, if they were so inclined, they would have their own notation and put that in their own words and take it out with them on that given day or hour, wherever they went in the community. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, so I, I appreciate your attentive listening, Ellen. But uh, if you think... If you just jump back to present day for a moment and you think about when you get out of bed and where you go when you leave your house and who you run into, you know, you've got everything from the dry cleaner to the pharmacist to the grocery store. Maybe you're picking your kids up at school. Maybe you have a doctor's appointment. Um, maybe you are a lawyer and you're in court and, you know, someone holds the door. Or there's the security office. Um, there are all these different people we run into on a daily basis that we don't really think about. But in the context of my story, these people were communicating this prayer intention wherever they went to whomever they came in contact with. And we had people in Ireland. We had people in Italy. We had people in Virginia. Again, some of them Muslim, some of them atheists, some of them Jewish, certainly some of them Catholic. And the, the origin of the story is obviously one of, of Catholicism and, and its sacred traditions and prayer. But my organs came back to a status that went from only being able to be monitored to a level where doctors could step back in and resume care. So this is not like all of a sudden I was at a state of 
some kind of human perfection. I still had a very long road ahead, but the fact that doctors could say, okay, there's nothing we can do, but we'll keep an eye on things to, oh, these numbers are changing, and I think now we can tweak medications, or maybe we can take her off one thing and try another, and it looks like we're going to be able to come together again and pull through, and she's going to make it. Um, and those were that is a result of those international, non-denominational prayer requests that started at my bedside, went through the phone to the sister, over to the bulletin board, and out into communities that spanned the globe. And after 47 days, uh, the I was taken off vented breathing, and they removed the tube. And my discharge papers from the intensive care unit say, Kate's recovery cannot be explained medically. Mm. Well, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Did so when did you first hear about this whole prayer chain? Uh it was articulated to me probably a year later in a way that I could wrap my head around it because when I came out of the coma, I was hallucinating on, you know, different anti-amnesiacs and um paralytics and I also had been in bed for 47 days. So my muscles from head to toe were totally atrophied. And I was on kidney dialysis. And I was on a lot of different medications from nutrition to things for different heart problems. Uh, I could not, I had no independence. And I was still in the, I remained in the hospital until the middle of March. So it wasn't really of any service for my mom or my dad to try and talk miracle. It was more about the moment to moment day to day needs that I was, that I had in active recovery mode. When I got back up onto the oncology floor, so this would be maybe, maybe about a month after I left the intensive care unit, because I went from intensive care to progressive care and then back up to the oncology floor. And Sister Mary Lawrence, who I'd never met in my life, came into my room, and I don't remember her introducing herself. She just, she put this, like, piece of saran wrap, as I thought, on my head, said a few words, and seemed to float out. And again, I did not have the strength to sit up on my own because of my chest tube and compromised respiratory system and the um, damage done to my vocal cords, I couldn't really create sound and I couldn't support my breath. So I couldn't even really say to her, who are you? And that was utterly terrifying. And my mom came back in the room and I mustered with everything I had this sort of like, who was that? And my mom I can still remember her face was so endearing. She said, oh, that's Sister Mary Lawrence. And she was part of all the prayers for your miracle. And I was like, what? Like, there was a miracle? I can't walk. I can't talk. I can't breathe. I can't do anything for myself. And I don't remember any of the organ failure or what led up to that. So I really was like, everything I know about miracles, this is not that. And I think my mom, in her infinite wisdom as an early childhood educator, thought, I'm not going to try and shove this down my kid's throat. I'm just going to let this be and let her grow and do and, you know, survive as she's able. So I'm taking forever to answer this, and I'm sorry. It's just that my process of understanding, owning, and celebrating miracle is really one of an almost 20-year journey, if I'm being honest. Right. Well, that, you know, that makes perfect sense when you put it that way. And um, how strange it must have been to wake up from those 47 days and, and, you know, that you you don't have any memory of that time. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you go, if you take it beyond my time in the hospital, the day that I was discharged, I was discharged in a wheelchair with leg braces, with a walker, with so much equipment because I was still not at all independent. I required physical, occupational, respiratory, um, speech, you know, all these different therapies to help me get stronger. And 
then I had to go back into a school where I'd really only had a couple of weeks in the fall with an opportunity to introduce myself. And I, I didn't get to introduce myself as the soccer star who played piano and had these great adventures. Instead, I was the new kid and the kid with cancer and the miracle girl. And those identifiers entered most rooms before I did. And as a 14-year-old who really was defiant and independent, I struggled with that for a long time. And and my pushback was really on the miracle because I resented that there was something that was telling people or that people were perceiving me to be without really getting to know me. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so much going on at that time in any teenager's life. And exactly. then add all this on top. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, you- yeah, it's wild. So, yeah, for all of my time in my church as a young person in terms of going to Sunday school, being a Eucharistic minister, singing in the choir, and going to things like daily mass for taking a test or a job promotion or, you know, any uh, an anniversary of a death. I mean, that was familiar and comfortable to me prior to this experience in the hospital. And then once I went back into my ch- church community with my parents, it was like people wanted to touch me. People wanted to talk about me. They, you know, but these people were so invested in me. And of course, now at 38, I can look back and say, oh my gosh, of course, like this is the personification of what people in, you know, who have a prayer belief system live for. But for me at 14, I was like, I really am so uncomfortable. I don't even want to go to church anymore because this is just, it's a horrible experience. And everything that I knew to be comfortable and valuable was seemingly stripped away from me. So I stopped going to church for a while. We had people in our faith community, like priests and nuns who would come over to the house. And and really, I credit my parents and the sisters of St. Francis in Syracuse for protecting and valuing the need that I had to just kind of grow and grow through it and grow in spite of it. And when I went to college, that was my chance to get to know people and introduce myself on my own terms. Um, So that was very, that was healing for me. And after college, I was looking for work. You know, I was trying to pursue a career in acting and drama, had some surgeries on my voice throughout my time in college. And, And I mean, there were medical milestones every day, practically for 10 years. Um, but when I started working in home care, uh, I went through the program at St. Joe's hospital founded by mother Marianne and her picture came up on the wall. And even in that moment, I was like, who's playing a joke on me? Like, what is this all about? And I went home after learning about this remarkable woman in our history. And I said to my parents, I think I kind of want to know more about this miracle. And Mother Marianne sounds really cool. To which my parents basically replied, you are so late to this party, but we're really <laughs> glad that you're ready to talk about it, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that was my evolution within this. Oh, that's fascinating. So your recovery really took 10 years then. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you talk to different medical practitioners, they would probably each give you a date in which they considered their piece of the puzzle recovered. But for me, what I count as my recovery were the milestones like riding a bike and ice skating and standing on a stage and being able to reach the back of a house with my own voice. Those were things that from a medical clinical standpoint would not have required documentation. But for me, they were the parts that got me back to being me before I got sick and enabled me to kind of harness and take full ownership of this whole experience and move forward feeling more whole. And that, so, so when people ask me, what was your recovery time? I tell them it was 10 years you know, and, and that feels really true to me. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And and yet you were able to go on and go to college and, and have right. a reasonably normal life. Um, you know, as much as I guess anyone does. 
Absolutely. Like in college, my freshman year, I still had pretty severe neuropathy and fine motor deficits in my hands. And again, even in my freshman year in college, we're pre internet and computers and, you know, there were recording devices, but that wasn't anything in my wheelhouse that I knew to be functional. So I had to have someone else, I had to have the dean write a letter to approve someone else to take my notes in the lengthy lectures because I couldn't hold a pen or pencil for a sustained period of time. And that wasn't anything that really, you know, parlayed into my social life or affected me in any way. And that's not something that the average person would consider. But that is the type of thing that I experienced in these ways for, you know, up to five more years at that point, you know, college and shortly thereafter. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And then how, so you eventually embraced the miracle and um, how did, how did you get involved with this trip to the Vatican? (laughs) What was that Um, all about? So Sister Mary Lawrence was this phenomenal researcher and she took all of my medical documentation and was the kind of point person on communication between Syracuse and the bishop and the Vatican and the the various people on the tribunal. So when there's a, a case for sainthood, there are, you know, medical people and religious people and a lot of people weigh in to determine what's fact and if in fact there is an inexplicable recovery that must be a miracle and furthermore it must be attributed to a person that was prayed to and so sister mary lawrence was doing this all the while i was you know struggling and recovering in high school and you know having this wonderful adventure in college and finding myself and all of that and in my i think it was right before my senior year of college, she called me and she said, this case has momentum and we need you to come home and we need you to testify. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I've had all this doubt and I'm not interested in any of this. And now I'm going to have to give testimony on something I don't even remember. And I'm probably going to burst into flames because, you know, my brain just went very theatrical and archaic in terms of, you know, people who don't believe the way they should or whatever. And then a few years after that, she called me and she said, the bishop heard from Rome and the Pope said, you will have your miracle. And so we're going to go to Rome and we're going to celebrate the beatification, which is the elevation of a person on their track to sainthood. And so you need to be ready. We'll have some interviews. You probably need to change the locks on your doors and be ready for people to camp out in your yard because people have very, very specific feelings about miracles and they want to be close to them. And, you know, proximity is, is a thing. And of course I learned some of that in my time in high school and college, as I would come home and, and interact with people at the grocery store who wanted to hold my hand while I was shopping or whatever. And so that didn't really phase me, but of course, because we are really mundane, we live mundane lives and are relatively boring people. We didn't need to change the locks because nobody showed up at all. And, uh, then we've got our tickets and with 250, I think, sisters and then maybe a few hundred more people from the central New York area and surrounding regions and even Hawaii, we went over to Italy for this pilgrimage that was the occasion of beatification. And my best friend, Abby, who in my book, she's referenced a few times in these different chapters in my life. And she came with us and we had a day off before the beatification mass where we fancied ourselves to be like Fellini movie stars and sitting in Piazza Navona drinking our wine and having this lovely time. And then we realized we were going to be late to St. Peter's Basilica, so we booked it through Rome and couldn't get in the front door but ran around to the side, which, you know, in any parish around central New York, there's usually a side entrance, and it's usually where people come if they're running a little late. Uh, in St. Peter's, it's definitely the papal entrance, and I did not know that because the sign was all in Italian. So we came flying through the side entrance and onto the altar of St. Peter's Basilica in front oh of my like gosh. a 
thousand people. My parents were totally mortified, but at the same time, they expect nothing less because this is just who we're just people, you know? (laughs) And uh, so that was, that was a tremendous celebration. Some of which, much of which was really over my head still as a young person who was just trying to live in spite of many things. Uh, But the sisters from, Hawaii and the sisters from Syracuse were just wide-eyed and sparkling and their joy at someone from their order, one of their own being elevated, was so infectious. It was just beautiful. And two days after that, Bishop Moynihan, um, I guess, informed somebody in the leadership that Pope Benedict wanted to have an audience with us. And so, you know, we got ourselves together and I had spilled olive oil on my good dress before, (laughs) before crashing into St. Peter's. So I had no idea that it was going to be a formal ceremony in this audience. I really thought we were just kind of going to follow history's path of the Pope occasionally meets with large groups of people. So it really didn't occur to me that it was anything more. And I was sitting in the front row with Sister Mary Lawrence, who spent now at this point the better part of her career ensuring that Mother Marianne would be canonized. So this was a huge moment for her. And the bishop said to me, you are going to meet the Pope. And I was like, yeah, that's why we're all here. Isn't it great? And he said, no, you're going to present, you know, relics of Mother Marianne to His Holiness. And I was like, oh, man, like nobody told me that. So I had to borrow a jacket and a hairbrush and get get my act together. And uh, we went up, Sister Mary Lawrence and I went up the steps. Pope Benedict took my hand and he said, you are very blessed by Mother Marianne. And I, for all of my formal acting training and and experience in the public eye said to him, yeah, obviously, like that's what came out. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, there, there is more to that story, actually. And if it's okay with you, I think I will hold off and encourage readers to pick that up because our whole time in Italy and at the Vatican was nothing short of a national lampoon Vatican vacation. Oh, no, that sounds wonderful. I can't, yeah, I definitely think that um, listeners should check out the book. But what was, I, I have a couple more questions for you. So, you know, you've, you, you're this miracle. The Pope has, you know, told you you're remarkable and you've got this, you know, blessing or whatever. Was that a lot of pressure to put on you to, you know, have to go through life and, and do, do you, feel that you have to do something amazing or what was your take on that I I was raised by parents who genuinely believe that everyone is amazing and has the opportunity to do great things so for me to be put on a pedestal and potentially compared to someone else and have someone else's pedestal taken away from them is counterintuitive to my entire belief system. So my, I can't say that I felt like I should be doing more and doing better for myself. Um, so I was pursuing a career in acting, um, which is something I wanted to do since I was a little girl, because I, I genuinely love the value of story. And I believe that everyone deserves a voice. And, and a lot of people don't fully understand what I mean by that. And, and it is very simple. It's as simple as it is complex. I believe that all voices deserve to be heard. That does not mean I agree with everything that everyone says. So when I was pursuing acting, I loved the opportunity to play characters that made choices or had backgrounds and engaged in behavior that was not like me. And not everybody could understand that. And I had people in my own family actually tell me on the occasion of a couple different roles I play, I took that I was abandoning my faith and my family. And I felt very strongly that I was not, and that for everything I knew about Mother Marianne, for everything I knew about myself, and for everything I believed in the greater good of all people, um, that I was doing the right thing. So, so there have been those, that's an extreme example, of course, but there are a lot of people who still let my miracle walk in the room before me. 
And that has been a challenge. And for years that I tried to make people listen or tried to tell people, but no, I'm just me. I've really now kind of transitioned into a place that says, you know what? I know who I am. I don't need you to know who I am. If you need me to be miracle for whatever that means to you, okay. But understand that we probably have a different perspective on, on how that's supposed to, you know, infuse the rest of our experience and community. Mm, it sounds like you got to a place of self and putting up those boundaries that uh, yeah. seems like a healthy place to, to be. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, you talk about living an inspired life. And I think, you know, I think all of us, you know, we have different pivot points in our stories. And I have a lot more in my story that I share in the book that is not about a Vatican miracle. You know, the Vatican miracle happened. The Vatican miracle informed some of the work that I did and the things that I, you know, shared, but it didn't really change who I was as a little girl. I am still very much the same person I was as a small child. And I am, you know, achieving the dreams and the goals that I set out for myself as a young person. But I had to kind of work around and and change the deadline and move the goalpost and all. I mean, I've incorporated a lot of metaphors in this process, I assure you. Mm -hmm. What did the whole experience, how did it change the way, like your philosophy around living your life and how did it change your thoughts or philosophy around death? Well, it certainly affected my perception of mortality. And um, I think but I, I can't say that it was the number one thing that changed my mortality. And I'll, I'll go off and I apologize for tangents. Um, when I was about seven years old, my mom worked for Children's Hospital. She was volunteering at Children's Hospital in D.C. And one of her friends had a child who was my age and, and he died. So he was seven. And she told my mom that he lived every year of his life as his full life as it was meant to be. So I was only seven or eight when that was one of my first messages related to death and dying. Mm. And so I, I am not a person that leverages tragedy. If it's an 89 year old versus a 32 year old versus a four year old, I believe that grief is very individual and that is certainly compounded by the fact that I did lose my dad a few years ago. So I went, I've been through the process of loving somebody with a whole heart and, and losing them. And so I, I have trouble when people use language that is comparative or competitive around something as, as sacred as life and death, whether it's a newborn or a grandparent. Yeah, that's, I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up and it's really very thought provoking that, you know, idea of living life to your fullest, no matter how much time you have. And yeah. that's a message that I think all of us could really take to heart. And, and many of us know it, you know, we've heard it before, but it doesn't mean that we act on it all the time. And I'm sure that nobody acts on it, you know, every single day. It's, it's, it can be hard to do that. I was just going to say, if we all did every single thing we wanted to do to the best of our ability all day, every day, we would not be able to function. You know, I mean, we have to maintain a balance and an understanding. And, and if, if there's one major takeaway in terms of like your, your focus is living the inspired life and living life to the fullest. And I have such great respect for that. And I genuinely try and do that myself. But I also have learned because so many people projected belief systems on me over the years that I don't really feel it's my position to, I, I guess how I live the inspired life is to be thoughtful and mindful and compassionate for everyone around me, regardless of whether I agree with them. And then for my own self, I just try and do the best that I can. And some days I feel like I'm just crushing it and it's great. And other days I just feel like I'm five minutes late to my own life all day long. And that's just how it is. So, you know, if, if you're, 
if someone says to me, you're a miracle, so how do I live my life? I'm not going to tell you to live your life the way you live my life because we're probably different and have different stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I like what your mom said, too, that everyone kind of is their own miracle. Everyone is their own special, has their own purpose or has their own gifts or whatever. Um, sounds like you had incredible parents. Yeah, I, yes, I do. You know, we are three, we, even though my dad is not walking around here on earth, I still feel very much like we're three peas in a pod and the advice and comfort that he gave me in every chapter of my life sustains me now. And with my mom here, it's funny because in my dad's absence, that relationship has changed. And my mom and I have this extremely fulfilling bond as adults. And yes, we're still mothers and daughter, mother and daughter, but we were caregivers together for my father. And then we both had to kind of navigate life in a way that without him, we now talk to each other about things that we would have formerly gone to him for. So that's just provided another layer of, of just beauty in our relationship now. Mm, that's wonderful. Well, Kate, I want to thank you for talking with me. I'm going to put links to your book and your, your website and everything on my show notes page. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we kind of wrap this up? Well, I'm so grateful to you and I don't know how long your podcast normally is. So I, I really am thankful. I know you indulged me in several of my answers and I, I appreciate that. Um, for anybody looking for a fun beach read now, yes, we've talked about some intense things like spirituality and life and death today, but there are a lot of fun anecdotes in my book and I believe there's a little something for everybody. So I hope that anyone who picks up the book can take, have a takeaway at that, that moves them to feel inspired and pay that forward. Wonderful. Super Kate. I, I really appreciate you being with us and um, I know that you're touring around to several Barnes and Nobles and other venues. So hopefully some of the listeners will get a chance to see you in person too. And that schedule yeah, on those links. I'll be in central New York um, in May and June, and then I'll be working my way across the country. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you all for listening to today's show. My guest was Kate Mahoney. She's the author of the misfit miracle girl. You can find this complete interview and links to Kate's book and her website on our website, readysetgrit.com. Thanks again for joining us and check in again next Friday when we release another episode with tips on how to turn your daydream into a phenomenal success. Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit, your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our ebooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit. Inspired actions, real results.